Wanna go ahead and read the thing? Alrighty. On a hot summer day in 1920, the Niles Building in Boston's financial district was besieged by anxious North End residents. Clutching newspapers, bank books, and account statements, they filled the sidewalks outside City Hall and down several blocks of School Street. As they waited, they compared losses in low voices. If the newspapers were right, the lady in the flowered hat had lost a thousand dollars of her life savings. The gentleman with the beard stood to lose half the value of his employees' pensions. And the couple over there, the ones resolutely not speaking to each other, were privately resigning themselves to the loss of their house and business. At nine o'clock sharp, a millionaire alighted from his chauffeured locomobile and approached the Niles building on foot. The sight of the crowd seemed to distress him greatly. He immediately went up to his office for sandwiches and coffee and ordered ladies to the front of the line where it was coolest. Working his way through the crowd, he shook hands, answered questions, and patted shoulders. His expression was by turns grave, concerned, regretful, and pleased as he spoke to members of the crowd, most of whom he knew personally. No, he said, of course the newspapers had it all wrong. Some journalists were jealous of his success, that's all. Yes, he would be suing for libel, today, in fact. Of course, the money, your money, was perfectly safe. In fact, anyone who really wanted to could withdraw it this morning if they would just care to wait patiently. As he passed, the mood of the crowd lightened. Several dozen breathed sighs of relief and set off for home. Others stayed in line, but in a better mood. Only a few were concerned enough to wait for hours before climbing the stairs to the offices of Security and Exchange Company and demanding a check for the return of their full investment plus interest. And even here, inside the modern, beautifully decorated office suite, some were persuaded to reinvest their money instead of cashing it out. The millionaire, an Italian-American businessman with the theatrical birth name of Carlo Pietro Giovanni Guglielmo Tebaldo Ponzi, wrote repayment checks totaling $2 million over the next few days. It was a fraction of his worth, he assured his remaining investors. In truth, it turned out to only be a fraction of the money he'd stolen over the course of the last six months in a scam so complex and profitable it's still being studied today. On this episode of Relative Disasters, The Life and Crimes of Charles Ponzi. Thank you so much, Greg. Welcome to Relative Disasters, the show where my brother and I manage our existential dread by talking about terrible and interesting historical events and their context, implications, and any related sidebars we feel like discussing. I'm Ella, Regulation Compliance Manager for the Relative Disasters Investment Firm. And I'm her brother Greg, Confidence Scheme Analyst here at Relative Disasters International Banking Services. Uh, thank you so much for that disturbing story, Greg. Yeah, I've been I've been looking forward to this one for a while because I feel like everybody knows, like, oh, it's a Ponzi scheme, but very few people actually know the details of what Ponzi's scheme was. It's both really simple and really complicated. Uh, before we get into it, I want to tell you our main sources for this episode are two lengthy, well-researched articles, uh, one in the New England Historical Society website and one called In Ponzi We Trust for Smithsonian, which came out about 20 years ago. Still very relevant. Oh, okay. Uh, our other source is <laughs> Charles Ponzi's autobiography, which is called The Rise of Mr. Ponzi. 
Uh, I should probably warn you at this point, he's a very unreliable narrator and we'll kind of come back think, to yes. <laughs> Like a lot of the stuff I'm going to be telling you about his background is from his autobiography. Take it with a huge grain of salt, please. You know the basics of a Ponzi scheme, right? It's just a scam where you're offering like an above average return. Uh, an investment, right? right? but you're really just yep. paying out your older investors with money from your newer investors. Newer investors, right, until the whole thing just becomes too complex and then it collapses in on itself, at which point you run away with a bunch of money. Well, it's not sustainable, right, because eventually you're going right. to run out of new investors. Now, that's different from a pyramid scheme, which relies on people on the right. bottom getting more people in. Right. In a Ponzi scheme, the, the guy on the top is the only one who's really, like, recruiting or... Right, right. And sure. it's also not Ponzi's invention. So this kind of investment scam oh, has okay. been around for a while uh, in America. There was one that was pulled off by Sarah Howe in the 1880s. She had a bank for ladies only where she would offer that high return by taking in new accounts. At some point, she'd take you and all your girlfriend's investment money and skip town, and then you'd never see her or your interest or your money ever again. So that's like the most primitive form of the scam. You're going to make a couple thousand dollars, you're going to ruin some people's lives, and then you're going to skip town and do it again someplace else. So, hashtag girl boss. <laughs> so tempting. <laughs> <laughs> also, a bookkeeper in New York named William Miller pulled a similar scam in 1899. He walked away with $1 million. He was caught almost immediately. Whoa. Yeah. And then he went on to become like a weird kind of, it's like this weird catch me if you can situation where he started advising uh, like the stock market <laughs> and the regulation uh -huh. agencies. Sure. So he actually goes on record Foxes as- and hen houses and all that. Well, he actually like gives some good advice on Ponzi when, when a little bit later oh, okay. in the story, when they can't figure out exactly what he's done that is illegal- William Miller is like, oh, hey, guess what, guys? <laughs> I know it very well. <laughs> what made Ponzi's scheme different and the reason why it's named after Ponzi and not Sarah Howe or William Miller was the scale of the fraud. Sure. And uh, I think a little bit of it was Ponzi himself. Okay. Okay. You want to do a little little background here? Yes, please. Love the background. Okay. So let me see, take a stab at that name. Carlo Pietro Giovanni Giulielmo. Uh, Tobaldo Ponzi. Oh my gosh, everyone listening to this in Italy is cringing so hard yep. right now. I'm yep. sorry. <laughs> we apologize to every native Italian speaker and anybody who just took it for fun. He was born in northern Italy in 1882, and by all accounts, he grew up a little spoiled, especially close to his mother. Okay. Um, he is a frequent correspondent with his mother, so the whole time he's out there, like in the world, he's writing her letters. Now, his family was wealthy, but they weren't crazy wealthy. They okay. were old money, and they had probably lost most of it by the time he was born. Okay. They are still able to afford to send him to college. So he goes to college at Sapienza University of Rome. He minors in partying and majors in spending the last of his parents' money. Ah, I see. Living the dream. Living the dream. Yeah. By 1903, it was getting to the point where he was like four years in, absolutely no prospect of graduating <laughs> and out of cash. Yep. I don't know if you've ever heard this term, but do you know Alcoholics Anonymous calls uh, pulling a geographic? Yes. Where you just, you just like move yourself and all your problems go away. Anyway, that's what he does. He goes to America. Oh, okay. Uh, he lands in America in November of 1903. 
And he starts out, he he's broke, of course. He yeah. says in his autobiography that he lost all his money to a card sharp on the way over. I don't know <laughs> if I believe that. I think he just spent it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no. So he just kind of takes odd jobs here and there, and he moves around a lot. Over the course of his lifetime, he moves around a lot. Okay. Um, and this is the beginning of that. Now, the reason why he can't find steady employment at this time is that he's a little bit scammy. So he's got a little bit of that, like, rich kid kind of entitlement going on. Oh, fun. Okay. He sees himself as smarter and better, like more morally stable, like mm. a, just a better yeah. person in general. We know the type, yes. Yeah, I think we all know <laughs> someone exactly like this. Yep. But he's using that to kind of inform his actions, which include taking money, you know, because sure. he's better than everyone else, and that's okay. Mm. He's just not an honest person, basically. He'd be an Instagram influencer today, then. No, because what he's doing is worse. Oh, okay. He's just stealing money. Oh, oh. That's much more simple. So, well, you'll <laughs> hire him at your restaurant, right? Because he makes a great first impression. Sure, sure, sure. So you'll hire him like in the kitchen and then he'll move on to waiting tables. Mm -hmm. And at some point you're going to realize that your cash register is a little light and you're not going to suspect him, of course, at first because he's such a nice, charming person. Sure. But eventually you're going to be like, oh, well, it's him. And then you kick him out and he goes to the next town. Okay. He does this for four years. Oh, my God. Which I can't imagine a more exhausting life. <laughs> just, I mean, yeah, that's real Just bad. getting hired and fired all over again. Like, even without the theft, it's just, like, sure. exhausting to me. But, I mean, with the theft, it's it's kind of like a game, you know? How much can I steal I from guess. these people before they, they catch on? And nobody prosecuted him? Nobody, like... Had no. a couple of big guys, you know, show up at his apartment and rough him up. Like, this is weird. No. And I think part of it is that he always stays within the Italian-American community and people know uh, that he has just okay. immigrated. Sure. So okay. I think there's a little bit of, well, we don't want to turn him in. Right. Right. Um, he's probably not stealing a lot of money each time. It's easier for them just to fire him and he moves on. And, of course, the Italian... American immigration at the time was pretty rough on the Italian people coming over. So exactly. they didn't want to, you know, give everybody, look, here's one of the bad ones. They're that... trying to stick together. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which, Ugh. you know, in one sense, it makes Charles Ponzi a lot worse. And then sure. in another sense, it's you can kind of see where you can understand from. it. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, it's it's awful. <laughs> yep. Okay. So in 1907, he immigrates again, and this time he ends up in Montreal, Quebec. Huh. Okay. And this is where the beautiful flower of his potential to scam truly begins to come into bloom. Okay. In Montreal, he moves into the Italian immigrant community, as he always does. Sure. And this time he meets Luigi Zarossi, and he gets a job at Banco Zarossi, which is Luigi's bank, oh, which serves no. Italian immigrants to Montreal. Do not hire this man at your bank. Well, this is the first time he's had a bank job, and it's got to be really exciting for him. Oh, it's God. all that money. Yes. <laughs> it's all that money, and it's just like he's handling it every day, and he's dealing with customers. Yep. He's apparently really good at this job. He lasts for a long time. <laughs> uh, Until he, what, steals out of the vault or something? Well, okay, so. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> 
So Zerasi's bank is a big asset to the community because it's run by Italians. Sure. So if yeah. you if you immigrate to a different country, you don't speak the language, maybe you don't have a lot of trust in a foreign banking system, right, you right. tend to stick with the bank that's available to your community. Yeah. The other nice thing about Zerasi's bank is that it pays 6% interest, which is that's huge. That's like, really good, yeah. Right? From comparison, my savings account, which is at a real bank, uh, pays 1%. Wow. So 6% is pretty big. It's actually a little too big. Yeah. Because it's fraudulent. Zarasi is building a Ponzi style banking fraud Uh. before Ponzi. So he's a real like early adopter. Yep. Yep. Um, So basically he's just using money from new accounts to keep up the older ones. Gotcha. Again, Charles Ponzi thrives. He does great at this job. He stays for a year, which is a new record for him. He gets promoted twice. He's still working there when the bank fails and Zarasi packs up all the money and takes it to Mexico. Okay. So this is his first real experience with like a professional scam. And then Ponzi's like, I bet you I can do better. Exactly. Yeah. Uh. (laughs) Well, he's got a ways to go. He's still a baby scammer. Um, (laughs) What he does, (laughs) what he does is he starts forging checks In his autobiography, he tells this story, this very, like, romantic, overblown story where he's in love with Zarasi's daughter, and he's desperately trying to take care of the rest of the family. And he agrees to forge a check for $400 at the insistence of a friend who owed him and swore it wouldn't bounce. So, uh, guess what happens? Um, he's lying through his teeth? Right, Ponzi never would have forged this check if his friend hadn't made him, and he oh, had to take no. care of this woman that he's in love with and her whole family. Perish the thought. So that's that's the story in the autobiography. Um, <laughs> I feel like I have to tell you, in 1920, investigative journalists for the Boston Post do a little research on this. Yeah. It's just straight up check forgery. Like, yeah. <laughs> there's... Anyway, uh, in in the autobiography, he says that his friend runs off with Miss Zarasi and Ponzi is brokenhearted as he goes to jail for the first time. Uh, okay. Yep. And he learns his lesson and never does this again. I wish I could tell you that. Right. <laughs> We'd have a nice short episode mm-hmm. and we'd all be able to get back to our day. Uh, so he's imprisoned at St. Vincent de Paul Penitentiary for a couple years before he is paroled in 1911. Okay. As an ex-con, of course, he has difficult time finding work in Montreal. So sure. a friend, not the friend who forced him to forge checks and run oh, off sure. with his girlfriend, a different friend, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, advises him to take a job as a translator in the U.S., Ponzi claims at this time to speak Italian, German, French, Greek, Spanish, and English with native fluency. Ah, okay. Let me guess. He does not. (laughs) Grain of salt. Grain of salt. Um, So Ponzi packs his bags and he boards a train for New York. His friend has not only recommended this American job, but asked him to travel with a group of Italian immigrants who are headed to New York to work. He's doing this as a favor to his friend because they don't speak English. The goodness of his heart, you know. At the Canadian border, the train is inspected by an immigration officer who realizes that the Italian laborers don't speak English and have false papers. Oh, okay. Which you could not have predicted that. No, never in a million years. Ponzi 
ever helpful, jumps in and explains they're headed to New York to work on the railroad. He is immediately arrested for smuggling illegal immigrants into the U.S. <laughs> because that's what he was doing. Yes! <laughs> that's exactly what he... Wow. Okay. In his autobiography, it's a big mix-up on the part of the American immigration authorities. Sure, he's completely sure. blameless. He's jailed for basically helping out his fellow immigrants. Yeah. Again, the official police report is that he was hired to do human trafficking, yeah. complete with fake papers and a cover story. Thanks. I hate it. <laughs> I just feel so bad for the laborers. They don't go to jail, but you have to wonder if this is like their first introduction to how things are done in America. <laughs> I mean, sure. Why not? Which is like, do we want to stay? All right. So after his arrest, he's convinced by his attorney into pleading guilty because, uh -huh. okay. again, he absolutely was. Sure. And this is interesting. He gets remanded to a federal penitentiary in Atlanta, Georgia. Okay. Which he loves. He has a great time in jail this time. He's not breaking <laughs> rocks. He's doing other, more interesting stuff. So in this jail, he meets a few more people who are integral to his future career. Okay. Ignacio Lupo is a gangster who specializes in extortion, extortion and counterfeiting. Okay. Okay. Ponzi is cellmates with Lupo, and he translates his incoming mail for him. Oh, okay. Okay. As a special favor to the warden, he translates Lupo's outgoing mail for the Secret Service. Naturally. Like, no calm qualms here. No, yeah, no. no issues of conscience. Nope. Nope. <laughs> uh, but he does seem to, like, genuinely think that Lupo is a great guy. Sure. And he's also, like, happy to do a little work for the government on the side. Yeah. He's just happy to be of service. That's all. Exactly. That's his whole autobiography. I'm yep. happy to be of service. Yep. I'm just here uh, to help. His other buddy... <laughs> His other buddy is Charles Morris. Uh, Charles Morris is a speculator in stocks. He's in jail for fraud. <laughs> Remember, this is the point, like 19, post-World War I and through the beginning of the 1920s, this is the point when the American stock market is really ramping up. Yeah. So in his autobiography, Ponzi has a really high opinion of Lupo's network and his street smarts, but yep. he just loves Charles Moore's acumen and nerve. Mm. Are you ready for a quote from this masterpiece? Yes, please. It's so hard not to read it in like a fake 1920s gangster style because that's how it's written. Ah, I'll she. do my best. <laughs> uh, quote, Charlie Morris was a pretty good sort of fellow, loaded with money, liberal, a good mixer, and extremely well-versed in Wall Street finance. He could read the stock exchange quotations backwards. One day he walked into Warden Moyer's office and asked for the privilege to send a code wire to his brokers. The warden, after much arguing back and forth, finally gave in. He told him not to make it a practice and send only that one wire along. Charlie did. Several days later, again he walked into the warden's office and handed him a check for $2,000 to bearer. The warden wanted to know whom and what it was for. It's for you, Charlie told him. It's your share of the deal I put through on my code wire. It seems he had made quite a haul in the stock transaction, but Warden Moyer did not like that a bit. He declined the check and gave him hell. End quote. Yeah. So unfair, am I right? Oh, completely. Eventually, Charles Ponzi finishes his sentence. He is released, okay. and he heads west to Alabama. Sure. He picks up work as an interpreter and a medical assistant in an Italian-American coal mining camp near Blockton. Mm, okay. 
I just want to do a quick sidebar and explain to you that Charles Ponzi is like a sponge, right? Since yeah. the minute he came to America, he's been soaking up these methods of scamming people successfully. Yeah. And it doesn't matter to him that A, he's scamming fellow immigrants, or B, he's not particularly good at it. Like, hmm. this is only 1914. He's still in his, I want to say, mid-20s. Okay. Okay. He's already been caught and put in jail twice. <laughs> Like, according to his autobiography, things are going great. He's a misunderstood genius, and his uh, yeah, big break yeah. is just around the corner. Absolutely. Again, we all know someone like this. Oh, my God. Uh... So aside from this, like, pathological self-confidence, the only other thing he's doing is he's not trying the same scam twice. Sure. He never forges checks after he gets caught in Montreal, and he okay. never does any human trafficking after he gets caught in New York. Thank you. So as he gets older, he's becoming much more clever with his scams, and okay. he gets more and more dangerous as a result. So in Blockton, he pretends to start an electric utility company. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Sorry, I have to. It's just such a Monopoly move. You it know? is. That's all I can All I can see him is as the Monopoly guy. Like, Yep. So he gets a lot of people. So these would be coal mining immigrants, most of whom are overworked and poor health, yep. living on the absolute edge of poverty. Yeah. He's getting them to hand over money so their house can be hooked up to his electric utility company. Which doesn't exist. Which does not exist. Sure. 100%. It yep. is in his head and it is nowhere else. Yeah. Uh, in his autobiography, this whole project is done out of love for his fellow Italian-Americans. I'm going to read you a quote, and you're going to throw up in your mouth a little bit. Are okay. you ready? I'm, I'm ready. I've got a cup and everything. <laughs> quote, I made up my mind that the camp must be provided with both light and running water. To decide with me is to act. Even at those days, I was no slouch at promoting, for the very good reason that money with me is always the last consideration instead of being the first. Why should I worry about money? The money is always around to be had. The main thing is to have an idea. A plausible idea which can be dressed up and sold. In another month or so, the plant would have materialized. But something happened to upset my plans. Something always happens. It never fails. Something so entirely unexpected that it catches me unaware. Reality End is quote. <laughs> <laughs> No. And this is an interesting part of his life. Okay. So in this case, the unexpected thing is that a nurse at the camp has been badly burned. Remember, he's there as a medical assistant. Sure, okay. Though, God help whoever yep. sought medical care from this guy. Yep. <laughs> uh, this nurse has been really badly burned, and Ponzi is the only volunteer to donate skin for a graft. Oh, jeez. Okay. Yeah. So they take a huge amount of skin off the back of his legs. Ah. This saves the nurse's life, but it leaves him laid up for weeks. Sure. Okay. During that time, of course, his imaginary power plant company folds. Uh, yeah. So even though this skin graft is a genuinely good deed, it's maybe the only one he ever does. Yeah, okay. His investors are still pretty upset about being scammed. <laughs> and in his autobiography, he's like, it's just that I'm very selfless and I care more for helping others than money. You guys are gross. And then he flees in the night. <laughs> wow. He ends up in Mobile, where he uses his fluency in Greek and probably some lying to become a medical librarian <laughs> at the University of Alabama Medical School. <laughs> That's Again, it's not the same scam. No, no, it's not. This is, 
it's kind of impressive in a way. See, I want to be really careful not to not to exalt his accomplishments. No, he sucks, but it's almost it's one of those things where it's like it's sort of like the guy who's bad at everything he does but just keeps mm-hmm. trying to do different things. Like he's bad at running scams, but he's just going to keep trying to do them. See, I would disagree with that. I think he's very good at running scams because he is successful. He's but taking he keeps money. getting caught. He's getting he keeps getting caught, but nobody ever gets their money back. Okay, okay. You okay. know, he's really making a living scamming at this point. <laughs> he's out there every day, he's grinding, he's answering the phones. Coffee's for closers. Oh, I hate it. I hate it so much. Okay. Yeah, it's not great. It's not great. It gets a little worse. I just want to warn you. This is small potatoes, but I'm getting into it because I want you to understand what kind of a person we're talking about. Yeah. No, no, no. We're we're, we're there. Okay. Keep going. All right. Uh, At the University of Alabama Medical School, according to his autobiography, he is indispensable and brilliant. He does everything from cataloging medical journals, which is really hard. Sure. um, To delivering babies. Sometimes they can't find the medical students and Ponzi has to get in there and deliver he's, babies. He's delivering babies. Yeah. Okay. After about a year, he tries to blackmail his boss. Um, sure. And he gets fired. <laughs> 100% not his fault. 100% Absolutely not his fault. No. <laughs> the world just conspires against geniuses like this. It's very true. It's unfair it's very true. is what it is. Yep. By September 1915, he's in New Orleans working as a sign painter, and he comes very close to swindling the city out of $30,000 by pretending to be in a secret Italian society that he would report on to the police for the right price. That's amazing. Right? what? I... Okay. So there is a lot of crime in New Orleans at this time. Sure. And the moment when he arrives is right after... A murder happens and the Italian-American community is suspected. The New Orleans police can't get into that community because it's very tight knit and nobody's going to talk to them. Sure. So what Ponzi's doing is he's going to the police and the mayor and city council and saying, listen, I'm in that secret society. I actually run that secret society, but I don't like crime. So for the right price, I'm going to tell you all about it before it happens. That's the scam. I, I, He's the hero we deserve. <laughs> I feel like, you know, it, it hurts my heart. I feel like he's worse than we deserve. <laughs> okay, it doesn't work. Oh, um, that's has, too bad. Yeah. In his autobiography, this is just a big prank. And he's working oh, with a partner. Okay. He's working with a partner. The partner's taking it way too seriously. Oh. Charles Ponzi gets uncomfortable and he leaves before he can get his $30,000. <laughs> okay. Okay. All this right. time he ends up in Wichita Falls, Texas. God, he's And he moving. gets a job. Oh, he gets a legal, legit job as a salesman to the foreign market in a truck company. Okay. So I don't believe he's fluent in eight languages. Yeah. Um, but he does have language skills and he does have like the kind of charm and I don't know. What do you call pushiness when it's a positive persuasiveness? Sure. 
So he has the charm and the persuasiveness of a good sales rep, and he does very well for himself. He's okay. so good at this kind of international salesmanship. He's able to get a job with a better firm in Boston, and he moves there in 1917. Okay. Ponzi has lived a full life at this point. He's 35 <laughs> years old. <Yeah. laughs> he has a real job. <laughs> he's making a respectable income. Sure, so, sure. of course, he's got like a great reputation at work and in the Italian-American community in Boston where he lives. Right. So you know what he's missing, Greg? Uh, uh, oh, oh uh, he's not married. Exactly. <laughs> he's missing true love. Uh, well, after his heart was so ruthlessly broken before, I'm not surprised it took him a little while to rebound. Yeah. All right, so he meets a 22-year-old stenographer named Rose Nochi in a streetcar on the way from Boston to Somerville. Aww. And he proposes almost immediately, like within a couple weeks. Jeez. Okay. Yeah. So Rose is a very nice person. She's very sweet and very respectable. She has a big Italian-American family. Her parents are immigrants. Okay. Rose was born and grew up in the Boston area. She's just very respectable, and she's, you know, just a regular nice lady. It doesn't seem like she ever really grasps who Ponzi is or what he's doing. Sure. Uh, you might, the other point I want to make is that you might meet Ponzi and immediately think that something's a little off with him. Yeah. Yeah. But if mm -hmm. he shows up with Rose, he immediately gets like, the benefit uh, of the doubt. She's right. one of those people. Right. Well, if she's with him, how bad could he be? I must be reading this wrong. Yep. So this is going to make it worse. I'm sorry. Oh, good. Rose is such a sweetheart. <laughs> and she's so crazy about Ponzi that when his mother, back in Italy, writes her with a factual account of Ponzi's time in America and Canada. Oh, God. So including the jail time, the bizarre stories, yep. the scamming. She marries him anyway in 1918. I just want to point out how bad you have to be for your mm -hmm. own mom oh. to drop a dime on you. And Ponzi's mother loved him, and he adored her. Yeah. He later brings her to America for a vacation when he's kind of at his height. Yeah. He's, they're very close. So the fact that she does this is just like, as a mom, I understand why you would do it. Uh -huh. but you would only do it if you really, really like the person your kid was trying yes, to Yes, exactly. <laughs> So that tells you like how, what kind of a person Rose was. Yeah. And also how bad you have to be to get your mom to write you out. <laughs> yep. Yep. That is accurate. Never, never get to that point. It's, it's not a place you want to be. Okay. Uh, okay. So Rose's parents own a little grocery, which Ponzi takes over and promptly runs into the ground. Sure. But that's okay because he's an international businessman. So with what little money he has left over, Ponzi rents an office in Boston's financial district on School Street. Okay. Which was and is the place with all the buildings and the busy business people and the banks. And Very so few forth. schools, though. Well, I think back in the day they had a school. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure they did. And then it got replaced by a 25-story bank. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so he sets himself up in business as a writer, editor, translator, and publisher of a book on foreign trade. Oh, no. This is 
not the worst idea he has. Sure. Um, he calls the trade the Trader's Guide, and his new company, which I thought was hysterical, is the Bostonian Advertising and Publishing Company. He's not real creative with the business names. Yeah. Uh, so his plan is to target different foreign markets and offer kind of like an expandable loose leaf book that will be easily updatable and you know you would like subscribe to this service and yep. he would send you articles and updates on pricing or whatever sure 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 it i want to emphasize it is legal to do this it's yeah. not like he doesn't it's not a good idea no like it's a lot of mailing to fuss with and it's a lot of like nobody wants to deal with loose leaf stuff unless no. it's really important um but that's his idea However, Ponzi is broke. And this is going to shock you. He can't get a bank loan because his account is perpetually overdrawn. And he has no assets. <laughs> now, now, wait a minute. That's not entirely fair. <laughs> the bank is like, you want a what? To do what? <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, sir, I don't care how good the lies are. I'm not giving you money. And this is the local bank. This is the bank on the oh. north end that the Italian-American community uses. So even in his own community, the bank is like, uh, sorry, I wish we could help. But no. <laughs> no. God. So he starts this very, like, small-scale version of the Trader's Guide. Okay. And one day in 1919, towards the end of 1919, yep. he receives a letter from Spain requesting a copy of the Trader's Guide. And it encloses a coupon for return postage. Ooh. This is the moment, Greg. This, this is, is it. The moment. All right. Well, do you know what an international reply coupon is? Um, okay. So in the early 1900s, you would have a uh, – it, it worked sort of like a stamp, right? Yeah, it's you basically – send it to somebody and then you could affix that and it would cover the postage sending it back, right? Well, no, it's more like a self-addressed stamped envelope. So you yeah. would include it in your letter right. and then the person on the other end would turn it into the post office, get a stamp in exchange, and then you'd get okay. whatever mailed back to you. Sure. Okay. So you're sending a coupon for postage, but you're sending it from one country to another. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. 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 This is it's something that the post office, the US Postal Service came up with this and there it works with member countries, which are, I think, at this time, they're mostly European countries. Right. Um, they're still in use today. They're legal. They're 100% legal. Um, okay. it, it's basically just like a way – it's a coupon for exchanging postal services across borders. Right. Okay. It makes sense. Right. So you don't have to like figure out how much a stamp would be in your currency and then like mail yeah. your currency to a foreign country and then have them exchange it and then buy a stamp. And yeah, 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 like yeah. you just don't want to do that for a letter, right? Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. What Ponzi realized when he got this international reply coupon from Spain was that following World War One, there were these waves of inflation traveling across a lot of the member countries. Right. And this was occurring alongside the relatively stable U.S. dollar. Okay. However... IRCs don't go up and down with currency. Right. Are you seeing where this is going? I am. So if you were to travel to Spain and buy some 30 centavo IRCs, yeah. you could bring them back to Boston and exchange them for a five cent American stamp and exchange the stamps for money, which you can do, which is legal. The exchange rate means that there is a tidy little profit in there. Yeah. 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 Right. Yep. This is like a 5 to 10% profit, so it's not huge. But still, but 
If you do it in volume. <laughs> if you do it in volume, which was Ponzi's plan. Yeah. <laughs> you could make some money, in theory. So this is what he decides to do on a massive scale. Oh, God. Okay. Except he's broke. Yeah. And this time when he goes to the bank, the bank is like, no, I'm sorry. We can't lend you money for <laughs> we're, we're not... <laughs> what sounds like a scam. No. Nope. <laughs> nope. Okay. Um, so he decides to raise some money from his personal friends and contacts. And his description of the plan is very convincing. Because remember, he's an international businessman. He sure. genuinely has overseas concepts. He genuinely understands foreign economies and yeah, yeah, the stability yeah. of the U.S. dollar. And what he doesn't understand, he's able to convince people he does. Right. Right. You just got to paper over the cracks with a few convincing lies and you're good. Yeah. I mean, that's that's such an important part of conning people. That's how I You just have to have the right vocabulary. The <laughs> you and me both. <laughs> but yeah, no, it, it, it's you've just got to know enough of the terms to fake through what you're talking about. Yeah. Oh, that's awful. Right. Scamming and if you're good at it yeah. and people like you, yeah. you know, and you have a nice wife and you're like a member of the community, yeah. they're a lot more likely to believe you. Sure. Okay. So we have to remember he has a great deal of personal charm. He has never tried to scam anyone or been arrested in Boston. <laughs> right? <laughs> All of his arrests are hundreds of miles away. Sure. Okay. All of his like potentially terrible scam blowback is like way out in alabama and quebec yeah okay. so he has you know he has an excellent reputation he is a respected member of the community and then thanks to his marriage he belongs to clubs he has an active social life he has local relatives by marriage okay when he has this light bulb moment about the reply coupons he has to realize as well so as well as well as this profit margin yeah. he has to be realizing that he's perfectly poised to make an absolute killing yeah so before long he has the seed money he wanted which was one thousand eight hundred dollars okay and he makes a big deal out of buying a bale of international reply coupons from other countries okay and he gets to work we're gonna put that in air quotes because he doesn't do anything right and yet his first investors make 50 percent back from their investment in 45 days which is unheard of yeah like, there is no legal way. I'm sure there is, but um, be careful. Are you sure? <laughs> we would like to point out that the SEC is not a sponsor of this podcast. <laughs> not yet. <laughs> if somebody offers you a 50% return on investment in 45 days, it's a scam. Yes. I mean, it's, it's yeah. Yes. It, it sounds too good to be true because it is. That is a scam. Right. To give you some comparison, the highest return you would expect to see on the stock market, which again is going crazy in the early point. 1920s, yeah. is um, like 5% yeah. after a year at the best. Yeah. Which is similar to what it does today, I think. I don't know anything about the stock market, obviously. Yes. <laughs> if you've been listening for this long, I am just using vocabulary words here. <laughs> you, you know, we don't have this kind of money. Yeah. Um, so, of course, the success of the early investors, this, like, amazing return, yeah. it really gets the attention of other people. 
and they start inundating Ponzi with requests to invest. Now, his style is not that he's knocking on doors and asking for people's money. Right. He lets people come to him, and then he acts like he's too busy. He's and too, too busy to take to him really. on. Exactly. Yep. That's... Like you have to, you have to yep. force him to take your money, and yep. then eventually he's finally like, "Oh, fine, I'll take your life savings." Yep. That is that is the classic play. Absolutely. Very very attractive. Yeah. Yep. All right, so his first move is to get a bigger office and some salespeople. And sure. this is part of the reason why the scam, because obviously it is a scam. Yeah. Um, oh, and I want to tell you, aside from that per- first purchase, there is no IRC trade at all. He's just paying out the interest with money from new victims, right? Yeah. We get that? Yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. That, that, yes. That is understood, yes. <laughs> right. But he's great at promoting. So he's got these salespeople. He's opening offices all up and down the East Coast. He has an office in New York. People look at this. You know, he's got this beautiful office in Boston's financial district. He has this lavish lifestyle. And people are seeing how the early investors are doing. They're getting this regular, like, stream of money. Um, And they want some of that success. Yeah. You know, these are just regular working class people and people who manage pension funds and banks yep. they're looking at this going on and they're not being super critical about it they're just like ponzi's discovered the scheme that nobody else has he knows exactly how to manipulate this market he's a financial genius he's a that's a genius thing. yep in june of 1920 a financial journalist named clarence barron realizes that ponzi's own wealth so his millions and millions of dollars because that one point, Greg, he's making a million dollars a day. Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, my Clarence God. Clarence Barron realizes that that money is not being invested in the business. Ponzi is using it to buy legal stocks and bonds and raking in that sweet, sweet 5% interest. Okay. Do you see the problem? Yes. Why would you make 5% if you knew how to get 50%? Hang on a moment. Yeah. It's a little weird, right? A little bit. So uh, Clarence Barron writes a front page article that runs in July under the headline, Questions of Motive Behind Ponzi Scheme. Barron says reply coupon plan can only be worked in a small way. This is front page news on the Boston Post. Okay. The article goes on to point out that in order to pay out the investments currently held by Ponzi's company, something like 120 million international reply coupons would have to be bought in European markets. Right. I read one article that that, that this was two Titanics with no people just full of room after room of international reply coupons, (laughs) which is a beautiful image. Um, Yes. So those would have to be bought in European markets and then sold for a 5 to 10% profit in America. Right. However, in 1920, there are only about 30,000 IRCs in circulation. (laughs) So that's a giant flag, and it is colored bright red. Yes. <laughs> uh, this is also the first time, I think, that someone uses the term Ponzi scheme in a headline. Ooh, I and like it. And this is also the beginning of the Boston Post sensing a good story and committing money and reporters to taking a deep dive into Charles Ponzi's background and his company. Okay. To counter the bad publicity, Ponzi sues Barron and the Post for libel. Guess sure. what happens? Uh, he loses. He wins. What? You want to know why? Because, of course, Barron doesn't have any proof. He just has those big weird numbers. All he's saying is, hey, <laughs> this can't possibly be happening. He doesn't have proof that it's not happening. Wow. 
Yeah, he wins $500,000, Greg. <laughs> wow. His next move is to hire a man named William McMasters as a publicist. He's like, get out there and repair my reputation. Oh, my God. William McMasters works for Ponzi for about a week before he realizes immediately that Clarence Barron is correct. Yes! That the huge profits were not legit or sustainable. And McMasters does the right thing. He quits his job and writes a piece for the Boston Post laying out the reasons why Ponzi cannot be making the profits he's claiming okay. and warning people not to invest. And he does not mince words. Sure. Would you like a quote? Yes. <laughs> This is going to be really satisfying after all that autobiography. Okay, okay, Are you ready? Okay, do it. Quote, the man is a financial idiot. He can hardly <laughs> add. He sits with his feet on the desk smoking expensive cigars in a diamond holder and talking complete gibberish about postal coupons. End quote. <laughs> no, that's accurate. It does track, doesn't it? Yes. <laughs> all right. So in early August 1920, Ponzi's office is raided by regulators and even worse, he's audited. Yay! You can imagine his papers <laughs> are an absolute mess. Some of his investors get cold feet and demand their money back. Sure. And this is when people start coming to his office and he kind of charms them into... Yeah, reinvesting. In reinvesting, yep. yeah. Yep. Uh, even though the audit that these regulators do, it shows massive debt, like yes. debt in the millions of dollars. And his assets are... $61 in international reply coupons, which are sitting in his office. I'm sorry, $61? That first bail that he ordered from overseas, thats it's a prop. He keeps it in his office and he's like, we have millions of these coming in and out every day. He only has the one and it's worth $60. Amazing. Yeah. Wow. Okay. On August 12th, he is arrested for fraud. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't see that coming, did you? <laughs> I'm going to give you one last quote from uh, The Rise of Mr. Ponzi. Yes, please. Quote, my house of cards had collapsed. The bubble had busted. I had lost, lost everything, millions of dollars, credit, happiness, and even my liberty. Everything except my courage. I needed that to take my medicine like a man to meet the future. Unquestionably, I was licked for the time being. But no man is ever licked unless he wants to be, and I didn't intend to stay licked. Not so long as there was a flickering spark of life left in me like there was then, and there is now. Life, hope, and courage are a combination which knows no defeat. Temporary setbacks, perhaps, but utter and permanent defeat never. End quote. Man, screw this guy. Yeah, you... <laughs> screw You don't this. leave feeling with a lot of sympathy. None! You know? Zero! It took a lot of courage to steal all those people's money. It sure did. And aren't we glad that he stepped up and took one for the team? Yep. I mean, if he hadn't done it, somebody else wouldn't <laughs> no, have... No, I don't, don't think so. <laughs> Not at this time. Oh, God. Okay. All right. So Ponzi is in jail. Yay! Awaiting trial. And the regulators, the auditors, the banks, the creditors... Yep. And the investors are sitting with his, like, mess of papers trying to figure things out. Okay. On a macro scale, the worst problem immediately with the scheme is that Ponzi had been getting loans from a bank in the Italian-American neighborhood in okay. Boston's North End. That's the same bank that he had been trying to get loans. Ah, okay. 
So once he rolled in with his gold walking stick and his locomobile, yep. they were willing to work with him, which is on them, honestly. Oh, yeah, absolutely. They knew this guy was a scammer, and they were like, well, but he's successful. But he seems to have worked, yeah. <laughs> and they had ended up actually extending him way more credit than they should have. Uh-huh. So when his company collapsed, it removed about $20 million from the economy, oh the local my economy. Oh, God. $20 million. That's 19... $200 million in Today's money. 2022 dollars. Yeah. Oh, my God. So if you can imagine that amount of money just vanishing. Just vanishing. Yeah. Overnight. Yep. And this is real money. It's not yeah. digital money. It's not like speculation. It's like this is people's life savings. Yeah. So, of course, this had a disproportional effect on Italian-American businesses and personal assets yep. within the community. The collapse of that local bank led to the failure of five more. Oh, and that, of course, led to more victims, some of whom had nothing to do with the scheme at all. Yep. Just a lot of further suffering. And I want to emphasize there were real victims. Absolutely. So, in addition to the bank failures, investors lost homes, businesses, life savings, and pensions. Uh, and it wasn't like the $20 million was just sitting in his bank account and could be returned. Yeah. No, it was. It Ponzi's was big talent is spending money. Yeah. We don't know what he spent it on. We just know that it disappeared. It, it disappeared. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's also important to point out that it, the people who were taken in by this scam are not like stupid people. Like this isn't no. something where you're like, haha, well, you got what you deserved. It's like they're being told by important people in their community by their friends and neighbors you're you know mm -hmm. i was i was made incredibly wealthy overnight by by ponzi look at this return sheet and yeah and don't you deserve that too yeah you know people come to america to secure a future for themselves yeah. and a lot of times that includes making money yeah, absolutely. or having access to opportunities financial opportunities that you don't have access to in your country that's a huge part of the American myth, right? Absolutely. You come here poor, you work really hard, and then in a few years, you're Charles Ponzi. God help us all. <laughs> so by this time, the tax people and the U.S. government are getting involved, and investigators are combing through Charles Ponzi's personal accounts and his assets. He has a mansion at this time. He's got a lot of nice things. Okay. Um, but that's only about $5 million. Yeah. There's still $15 million kind of in the wind. And for a long time, people thought he gave it to Rose and Rose ran out for it. I don't believe that. No. Rose is way too respectable. And I think she got dragged um, down with this stuff too. I don't think she understood what was going on because it wasn't going on for very long. Yeah. You know, the, the part where the scam is out of control is... Six, like six months, months at the most. Like, yeah. He is like he's all she knows is that. He, well, OK, all I think she knows is that he's started a new business. It's been very successful. Yeah. They have a new house. His mother came for a long visit. Yep. And, you know, things are going well. I don't think she understood the scale. And I don't think she was complicit. And nobody no. nobody yeah. seems to think that she had anything to do with it. Sure. Uh, but there was some speculation that she Mary maybe buried some things in the back lawn. So <laughs> his mansion is still there if you ever want to go dig up holes in it with me. I'm sure people have gone over it with metal detectors. <laughs> <laughs> well, what if it was in cash dollars, Greg? Have you thought about that? 
then it would have rotted away. Well, always got to be uh, bursting my bubble there. Yep, sorry about that. All right, it's okay. It's okay. Uh, so the end result was that most of Ponzi's direct investors only got back 30 cents on every dollar they had loaned him. Wow. So, yeah, that's pretty bad. <laughs> you don't want an investment that takes... Takes 70% you know, of your... Yeah. Yikes. You're gaining, you're gaining 50% for six months and life is great and then... Yeah. Whoops. Yeah. Okay. Charles Ponzi pleaded guilty on a single count of mail fraud. He originally had, I think it was like 85 charges. And he worked out a plea deal with the government where he pleaded guilty to one count. Okay. (laughs) And he served three years in federal prison. That's it. Three years seems short to me. I don't know. Wow. Anyway, he gets out. He moves to Florida. Okay. I wish I could tell you he bought a little cottage, like learned how to fish, dedicated the rest of his life to rescuing stray cats. Nope. But he did not. Nope. He immediately started a little real estate scam under a different name. He was literally selling swamp land to (laughs) out-of-state buyers. Yeah. Which he hasn't done before, right? Nope. This is is a new thing. It's a new one. Always creative. Always evolving. He made bail... Oh, sorry. He got arrested. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Because that's illegal. Yes. He was arrested in Florida in 1926. He made bail and tried to flee the country, Uh but was arrested again when he told someone on the ship he was trying to escape on what his real name was. Oh, good. Always the ego. Okay. So he gets arrested again. And because there was still a warrant for his arrest in Massachusetts, he mm. was sent there, okay. where he served an additional seven years Okay. on the other charges. He got out in 1934 and was promptly deported back to Italy. <laughs> the U.S. was finally like, you know what? Have we back. can't. Yep. <laughs> we can't. So what happened to Rose during that time? Did they divorce or did she just stay in the U.S. and they stayed married? So the thing is, he gets deported back to Italy. She wants to go with him and he does not take her and she divorces him. Wow. Yeah. Rose is in her late 30s. She has spent a lot of time with this man. Wow. Like supporting him through the jail sentences, through the fraud. She has to know at this point kind of what he is. Yeah. And this is the point where she finally divorces him. Okay. Yep. She marries a Ukrainian immigrant named Joseph Ebner a couple years later, and they both live into their 90s in suburban Boston. I really hope he was a nicer husband, like calmer, sure. better job. Maybe less scammy. Yeah, but still like a good storyteller. Wow. I'm creating a whole a whole mental picture here. Okay. <laughs> I hope he was very nice to her. I hope he did some of the cooking. I'm imagining a thick mustache. In Italy, Ponzi tried building some little businesses here and there. Because he basically has no other skills at this point. No, he doesn't. Uh, He is continually losing money, and when World War II breaks out, he moves to Brazil to work for an Italian airline that went bankrupt a couple years later. Okay. Not his fault that I read about, but I wouldn't be surprised. (laughs) But it wouldn't surprise us. During the 1940s, he wrote his autobiography while suffering both extreme poverty and serious health problems. 
I think it's very telling that he ended the story with his 1920 arrest because it really is all downhill from there. Sure. So that quote that I just read you is the end of the book. Oh, okay. Yeah. After that happens, after he's arrested in Boston, he lives for another 30 years almost. Sure. Like he has a lot of a lot of life after this. It's just not fun sure. the way his early years were. Okay. Which is what he deserves, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Uh, Charles Ponzi dies in 1949. He never regrets or apologizes for any of his actions sure. ever in his entire life. Yep. And in his last interview, he makes the following statement about the Ponzi scheme. Okay. Quote, even if they never got anything for it, it was cheap at that price. Without malice aforethought, I had given them the best show that was ever staged in their territory since the landing of the pilgrims. It was easily worth 15 million bucks to watch me put the thing over. End quote. No. I keep getting hung up on where he says, without malice aforethought. Yeah. Like he's just an adventurer out to make a, make his fortune. Yeah, and, he just accidentally you know. tripped and <laughs> swiped a bunch of people's wallets. I feel like his whole life, or at least as soon as he lands in America, he just becomes malice aforethought. Yes. yes. Even when he's on the straight and narrow, he's planning for his He's scheming something, yeah. Yeah. Gross. Yeah, it's it's pretty bad. Of course, Ponzi was not the last person to try and scam people in a Ponzi scheme. No. Right? He's not even the most successful, nope. although that word sounds very wrong in this context. Uh, Lou Pearlman. Have you ever heard of him? Yes. The record producer yeah. who worked with Lou Pearlman deserves his own Boys. episode because the amount Let of damage. Let me spoil that for you. <laughs> the amount of damage that he did both to uh, the music scene and the people mm -hmm. who he preyed upon is pretty extensive. Well, he was also a Ponzi schemer. He claimed to own two airlines. Yep. He had imaginary airlines mm -hmm. and he offered investors a high interest rate, uh, which again, yeah, the airlines were imaginary. Yep. This was, he ended up making $300 million before he got caught in 2006 when people noticed that the companies he said owned his airlines did not exist. Yeah. And we have to touch on Bernie Madoff, an American financier who defrauded his investors out of $65 billion. Yes. That's billion with a B. Between 1990 and 2008, that is a classic Ponzi scheme yep. where he was also doing the thing that Ponzi does where he's like, oh, no, I don't usually deal with yep. people's personal money. Yep, exactly. Yeah. You know, let's set up a meeting, but I don't really think I can take your money. Madoff, Madoff is the largest Ponzi scheme that's ever existed, and it is such a deep rabbit hole, and it is absolutely fascinating, but it's also just skin crawling. Uh, I do want to point out, while I was researching this episode, I came across some advice from the Securities and Exchange Commission, the government agency that keeps an eye on the stock market and tells you which investments are legit and investigates ones that are not legit. Nominally. Nominally, right? Because our whole economy is really a scam if you want to. We don't <laughs> we don't pull that thread, level. Ella. We don't pull that thread. The whole sweater comes apart. But we'll be here all night. Ugh. Uh so some of the red flags that they want you to watch out for, are the ones that are associated with Ponzi schemes yep. include high returns with no risk. That's not a thing in investing. No. Uh, very consistent returns are also suspicious. Yep. Investments that aren't registered with regulators. Yep. So companies that like the SEC doesn't know about. Yep. 
uh, top secret or very complex strategies. Like if you if someone explains the strategy that they're using to make all this money and it doesn't make sense to you, don't invest. It's not them. that you're dumb. No, <laughs> it's that you're it's, trying to be. Scared. They're making it up. Yes. Yeah. Uh, they want you also to look for accounting errors on paperwork because. Once you're scamming, it's really hard to make to keep everything straight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Uh, difficulties with cashing out your investment or receiving payments are also a red flag. Yep. Also, here's the big thing: if you go to cash out and the company offers you a higher rate of return for staying put and reinvesting, it's a Ponzi scheme. Get out! Don't do it. <laughs> do what we do: put all your savings in gold bullion and bury it in the backyard. Uh. Right? I don't know. If, <laughs> if I had any gold bullion, I don't think I'd bury it in the backyard. Oh, check your backyard. I think you got some back there. Sure. No? Okay. Uh, and that's the story of Charles Ponzi and the Ponzi scheme. Oh, well, gross. I don't like it. Yeah. I don't like it yeah. at all. Gonna need to take a shower after this yep. one. Yep. That's pretty bad. All right. Although we gave you slightly exaggerated credentials at the top of the show, we do fact-check our stories in an effort to give you the best disaster experience possible. If you'd like to read more about our sources, a complete bibliography is available in our show notes. If we got anything wrong, please let us know. You can do that by emailing us at relative.disasters at gmail.com. Or if you'd like to shame us publicly... And we know you do. <laughs> Especially after this one. Especially after... <laughs> why not use our instagram at relative.disasters thank you so much for joining us for this episode of relative disasters we hope you've enjoyed the story and the discussion and please join us next time for another strange dangerous and interesting event from history my brother has selected our next disaster what's it going to be greg well you know nothing says disaster quite like the sudden mass extinction of three quarters of the living things on earth that's a scale we have not approached before. No, no. This I is, like your scope. This is a this is an absolutely massive thing uh, that changed the uh, the makeup of the planet itself. Uh, we are going to take a look at the Cretaceous Paleogene extinction event. When you say a lot of the life on Earth went extinct, are we talking? everything this is we're gonna talk about why uh why the dinosaurs don't exist anymore we're gonna hit the science real hard it's gonna be it's gonna be fun we're gonna talk about why uh a metal that is normally only found in meteorites suddenly started to appear mm -hmm. i do love a meteorite story all right that sounds good <laughs>